Greetings both history fans and film fans. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at History and Film. It's a good way to know when new episodes drop or just see other interesting history or film tidbits. And if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to History and Film, and we will start off with debating whether or not today's film is a film. <laughs> we don't have to debate, because it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, hey now, Logan, that's what's wrong with society. If everyone just thinks their opinion is fact, <laughs> then we have problems. Right, yeah, my opinion is the correct one. <laughs> um, it's objectively right, <laughs> and everyone else just doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. And it, coincidentally, every issue is like that, too. Like, I have the best opinion on every issue. <laughs> that's that's, <laughs> And you know what? I don't, with you in particular, I don't necessarily disagree. But that attitude is uh, held by people on different sides of every uh, issue. And we're, like, hovering around politics. And I want to say, like, oh, there's no room for politics where we're getting ready to discuss Alexander Hamilton. Oh, yeah. It's uh, nothing but political, just not necessarily political right. fights that are relevant today, which actually is kind of interesting if you think about it and how you look at, you know, today in the United States and how entrenched, you know, I don't even want to say both sides because there's more than two sides of things, but just, just how entrenched everyone is with their opinion. And then is it going to be one of those things almost inevitably where 50 years from now, 100 years from now, everyone looks back and it's just like, we don't care. We don't care who was right and who was wrong. We don't have we have no vested interest in anything they're talking about. Yeah. And it's like just looking at Hamilton and Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans and the Federalists, like it's kinda always been like that. No, true. The details shift. I mean they George Washington worked really hard to make sure that during his administration party politics were not really a thing. And honestly, I think George Washington is kind of like the only president that has been able to do that. And also like the only president that probably will be able to because, you know, basically at, at that time, like George Washington was independence. He was the revolution. Like George Washington was the United States of America to a lot of people. Right. And so like everyone could get behind him. Yeah. And he even had people in his cat, like, you know, Jefferson and Hamilton were both in his cabinet, both vehemently disagreed with just about everything the other person was doing. But they were both like, yeah, but we'll come together to help out George Washington. And I think it probably worked because he didn't engage in the partisan stuff. Like he understood where those exactly. lines were and just basically yes. just didn't proffer an opinion on which side he fell and just said, we got other things right. to worry about than that little dispute. But we're going to talk about him later. Or actually, I should say, at time of recording, we should have, sorry, at time of recording, we're going to talk about him later. At time of right. listening, we should have already discussed him and... We we just talked about him, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So today we will not be discussing George Washington too much. Uh, we will get, be getting into Hamilton. So the musical itself is just kind of a work of brilliance and something that's always impressed me or something that I've always noticed that in common with things that break through and become... Oh, not viral is not the right word, but just just to just go big, just explode outside of their own little world. Like there's the world of Broadway, and you have something like this that goes big and becomes mainstream. You know, the same thing with like, oh, you know, there's lots of YA novels, and all of a sudden Harry Potter breaks through. It's like those those things that break through. The thing I've always noticed, I feel like they have in common, is what I call bold simplicity. You take a fairly simple concept that's just slightly different or unique and just run with it 
like it's the most obvious thing ever and why did no one do it before? And so, yeah, sure, a hip-hop musical with a ethnically blind cast and about a founding father and just, yep, go, let's just do it. Oh, and it works because the music is just so on point. Like if this music was not very good, this would be a train wreck. But the music is yeah. so good that it just makes everything work. Yeah. And it, it's funny too because it's like I can still enjoy and appreciate the music and the songs and stuff from Hamilton despite the fact that Lin-Manuel Miranda has lost basically all of his luster to me. Oh, really? I find Lin-Manuel Miranda now to be like so incredibly cringy. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, big time. But Hamilton's great. <laughs> Hamilton's fine. I still think there's a genius to him as a writer of lyrics, but I would say maybe that's where the genius ends, and maybe people were thinking he was just going to be this ubermensch or whatever that kind of can do it all. Yeah, I, I, he, like, since Hamilton came out, he kind of got to be this, like, he was so ubiquitous in entertainment in general. You couldn't go five minutes on the internet without seeing something that had to do, whether it was something about one of his movies, something about like a late night talk show appearance or, you know, like his, the infamous like selfies and stuff that he was posting all the time. Like he was just everywhere for like years after this came out. Okay. So you're not just saying necessarily that he isn't as talented as he's purported to be more just like, he's just so ubiquitous. It's become annoying and you're over it. Well, exactly. Yeah. He's so, he's so ubiquitous. And I don't necessarily put this on him personally, because I think if I saw that much of anybody, I would be like, Oh my God, like enough, (laughs) come on. Like, can we kill it? Can I find somebody else to entertain me? I don't know. Okay. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. And yeah, last last year was even like one in particular where you saw you had the Hamilton stuff and then followed shortly by in the Heights followed shortly by which one did he direct? Uh, he directed Tick, Tick. Yeah, Tick, Tick, Boom. Boom. Yeah, yeah. He was like big in the production of Moana. Right. He did a lot of the music for, like he, I mean, he's very successful. Right. And like he's a talented guy. I've just been beaten to death with Lin-Manuel Miranda stuff though. And it's like, it's it's almost like not fair to him either. Because like Tick, Tick, Boom was really, really good. And I think I liked it less because I knew that it was a Lin-Manuel Miranda project. <laughs> like, if it would have just been just, oh, just yeah, somebody else, yeah. or if I just didn't know, I think I would have actually appreciated it more. Just because my brain went there, I kind of thought the same thing about The Hateful Eight. I thought The Hateful, Hateful Eight was pretty average. But if you had told me it was anyone other than Tarantino, I'd be like, holy crap, that's a that's solid. Like, that's really impressive. But because yeah. it's Tarantino, I'm like, eh, it's all right. That's a good point. Meaning because I love Tarantino, but because it's lesser Tarantino, it seems disappointing. But lesser Tarantino oh, yeah. is better than most people can do. Right. I think, and I, I think that uh, in just about everybody's Tarantino stack up, Hateful Eight's like near, if not at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. But it's still, it's still good. But it's still better than most movies most people end up making because they can't yes. do what Tarantino does. And so it's the same thing with Winland Manuel Renda. It's like he hasn't matched Hamilton yet. And so it's like, oh, that's kind of disappointing. It's like, yeah, but Hamilton's really freaking good. Yeah, but I, at this point, like, I don't even want him to. And I kind of hope he just, like, takes a couple years off. Like, I, okay. I, we could really all, I think we could all use a break, to be honest. <laughs> and I think, I like think a lot of that comes, though, too, when you kind of, when you kind of break big, I don't want to say late, because he's, like, my age. But yeah, you know, he's, he got big in his late 30s, early 40s, not when he was, like, in his 20s. And so I feel like now he has all these opportunities that he would have killed for in his 20s. And so he's like, yes, oh, yeah. yes. Well, and, He's been 
grinding. Yeah. For no, right. Decades. Like the guys put in the work. He had. He was a before he ever did Hamilton. He was already a multi Tony award winning Broadway guy. Well, right. In the Heights was before Hamilton. Yeah, just not the movie. Yeah. Yeah, he was doing all kinds of stuff. Actually, the first thing that I ever saw Lin-Manuel Miranda in was a college humor video in like oh, for real? 2007 or 2008. Yeah, it was it was a sketch thing where they were doing, um, they hired all these interns that were freestyle rappers, and they kept getting mad at because they would just literally just rap about everything that they did. And uh, like two people in the office challenged each other to a rap battle. And, like, they just got the interns to rap battle each other for them. And one of them is Lin-Manuel Miranda. Because huh. he, he had a show, I think it was on Broadway. Uh, it was a stage show called Freestyle Love Supreme, where they would do, like, freestyle rap at every show. Like, every show was different. So that was, that was the first time that I ever saw him. And I was like, wow, this guy's, this guy's great. And then I, you know, saw Hamilton. I was like, wow, this is awesome. And then I was just... <laughs> proceeded to be beat to death with Lin-Manuel Mel Miranda content for the next seven years. <laughs> All right. So we were talking last time uh, off air about how we were going to divide up the uh, homework assignments here. I feel like it kind of became, oh, I guess Logan has to do everything because I took Jefferson and Madison and gave you Hamilton and Burr, but like this whole thing's about Hamilton and Burr. And yeah, I'm going to talk about Jefferson and Madison, but like, I don't have a ton to say. So this is going to be kind of directed by you, I think, when we go through Hamilton here. Yeah, and they everybody, though, like, all of these guys are so intertwined into each other's stories, like... True. Oh, true. It's more It's more going to be just us going down the timeline and then, like, interspersing info about each of these guys. Because if we tried to do, like, one at a time, we would be covering so much of the same ground multiple times. Oh, true, true. It'll kind of ping pong back and forth. That's a good point. And then uh, we'll say it right off the bat. In general, the play obviously hits big milestones correctly, but it's also doing what most, you know, works of fiction do and streamlining things, combining characters, you know, yeah. you know, condensing things just to kind of make it flow better. So it's a very impressive script, but he also, like... If he needed to cut a corner or change something, he would do that just to make it fit. Yes. Nothing necessarily egregious sticks out in my mind, but... The most egregious thing is the Skylar sisters, the way that their family's portrayed. Oh, uh, yeah. Like yeah. the oldest one. And, and that's like actually a major plot point in the show <laughs> is that... You didn't say movie. <laughs> I, was, I didn't want to say play, but I also didn't want to say movie. <laughs> In the movie, <laughs> it's a major plot point that she's the oldest and, you know, she can't marry Hamilton because she has to find someone, like, richer and someone who has a better station, when in reality, she had multiple older brothers. Like, that was not a factor at all. Oh, yes. But I actually, I saw a an interview with Lin-Manuel Miranda where he was like, oh yeah, like, I just forgot that that was the case. And then I wrote it and it worked and so I just left it that way. So, like, he knew, but also, it doesn't... And he didn't necessarily change it on purpose. He kind of forgot, and then was like, ah, screw it, this works. Right, he he forgot, and then he was like, oh, actually, this works better anyway, so I'm just going to leave it that way. It's not like he, you know, did any... Uh, that's not a huge historical blunder. Right. And it actually works better for the story. Like, that's something that I'm okay with. Or the, the fact that there's a scene where he meets Lafayette, Hercules Mulligan... Oh, right. Aaron Burr... All on the all same, the day, at the same, at the same time. time. Like right. that definitely did not happen. 
because real life never happens that way. But like, right. yes, it's you need to do happen. You need to have a play do that. Otherwise, it's just going to be a mess. Yes, and that's and that's the best way to, for that you know to do that for the movie. And so he just you know even though that one hundred percent was not how that happened in real life. But you know, like also no one was rapping in seventeen seventy six either. So <laughs> <laughs> like it's you know it's all going to be. For entertainment, yeah. Alexander Hamilton's not his not Hispanic, and yeah. You know, and as someone who's trying to write historical fiction, I, I I totally get it. There's too much. You just can't keep it all in your head, and then at yeah. some point, you just have to start writing. So I get it. I do like how right off the bat, and I've forgotten this part. I remember obviously my my favorite character is kind of you know George the Third. I just, he just kind of like steals the show for me every time he comes on. It's my favorite song too. But at the very beginning, they have him being the. Uh, intro and like telling everybody to silence their cell phones and stuff and oh yeah i just yeah, thought yeah. that was a nice a nice touch is having him as almost like the uh not the greek chorus but just kind of like the mc and starting everything off with with george the third who i'll go actually let's go ahead and, again we'll kind of as we get to them here let's uh start briefly with george the third which i actually did a whole episode on in the pre-logan days so if you go back and look at episode 39 i did the madness of king george which does discuss this very same king george we see in hamilton about well, Hamilton covers so much time. It, I don't want to say 10 years later, but it is about 10 years. It, it's like it gets into like 1780s, 1790s when you get to the Madison King George. In the play here, and so the casting seems to be about right, he would have been 38 years old in 1776. So the guy they have playing him uh, would be about right. I do think his performance where it's kind of almost, it, you know what it reminds me of is like a, oh, nutcracker tin soldier kind of like, how proper, like his mouth even almost moves like he's not real, like a marionette kind of thing, and just mm-hmm. how he almost seems artificial when he's up on the stage there. But I think that kind of fits if this is the Mad King George. And there's, there, and even though he his insanity didn't work in the way we kind of see the hints of it, you know, maybe in the play, it was kind of more just like he would go catatonic and, well, I guess you know I say that. He did a lot of weird random things, but uh, <laughs> not necessarily like we would see him in the play here. Anyway, and then from there, we meet a young Alexander Hamilton who's basically just come to the United States from the Caribbean, right? So why don't you launch into the, like the, yeah. what the play does and then also the actual Hamilton in this time. So he, is, he was from the Caribbean. He was born in either 1755 or 1757, depending on, on who you ask, I guess. I guess there is evidence to show that he was born in 1755, but he himself says that he was born in 1757. Uh-huh. But there are historians who think that he was actually born in 1755, but said he was born in 1757 because it would make it more impressive if he was two years younger than he actually was. <laughs> so he uh, was orphaned at the age of 13. His father left and his mother died. He did move from uh, the Caribbean to New York City in 1772, which is real. I think they show him... Do they say when he arrives in New York City in the in the movie? I don't I don't recall. The fir- the first time they mention his age, they say he's 19, uh-huh. which would have been 1776, but also that's not right okay. at the beginning. But in general though, it does seem okay. like maybe the the beginning of the play is kind of like condensing the first 4 years in the states as kind of gotcha. like happening within a couple months, maybe. Yeah. So was he was his family background where his parents were like well off in the Caribbean, like landowners and slaveholders, that kind of thing. Um, no, or just like laborers down there. Yeah, and I think I don't remember if they specifically say in the movie that his mom was a prostitute, but that's not entirely accurate. 
like she wasn't necessarily a prostitute as much as she was just kind of a woman of lower station. Gotcha. But yeah, I didn't I didn't really uh to be honest, I didn't really look into his childhood that much cuz I Okay, okay. Didn't I didn't I just didn't you know, there's so much to talk about. I had to leave some stuff out. No, and I I was just kind of curious because he was kind of is, you know, he does kind of that self-made man, so I'm curious how low he started, but he is yes. he is yeah, definitely started very low. Right. His mother was of a lowly station, but she was of high enough station to at least have had two slaves when she died. Mm. But Alexander Hamilton did not inherit them because he was born out of wedlock. His parents were not married. Okay. And being a bastard at that time was a much bigger deal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that also means that he is actually, along with John Adams, one of the very few founding fathers who never owned any slaves. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah. I could see people seeing it as them forcing 21st century morals onto how his he views slavery, but it actually seems accurate. And when you get and same thing when you get to his friend John Lawrence, he was a big anti-slavery guy at at the time. So there were outpoke, yeah. outspoken opponents of slavery at the time yes. and the and the play does highlight some of that but not inaccurately so. Like, those people were uh, anti-slavery at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. So he, Alexander Hamilton, moves to America. Well, moves to New York City. (laughs) Right. The colony of New York, specifically New York City. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wanted to go to Princeton, um, which we hear him talk about to Aaron Burr in the movie. But he didn't get in. He ended up going to what at the time was called King's College that is now Columbia Mm. in New York City. It's still there. Yeah, so he went to Columbia. While he was there, he was a member of a militia called the Hearts of Oak. Hmm. And he drilled with them in his like free time when he wasn't in class. Um, so he did serve in the Revolutionary War. Um, this is something else that I didn't really go into that much because I believe at time of listening, we will have already done a couple of episodes on the Revolutionary War. Yes, that is the plan. Okay, so I'll mention those then so you can go back and and listen to this stuff that i add about (laughs) alexander hamilton in those episodes recording out of order is tricky yes yes but anyway so it in the movie i do believe they talk about how they stole a cannon from the british they stole a british cannon and used it against them in new york city that's real that Ah. is a real thing that alexander hamilton did while he was still a college student with this militia he went on this raid where they stole a british cannon and they were able to use that cannon and then fire on the british from like elevated terrain and it was actually, like, turned out to be really, really helpful. <laughs> huh. And then throughout the rest of the war, he did serve as George Washington's aide. So that's also accurate in the... Yeah. And just, and just kind of, like, through this militia is kind of what got him on the radar as, like, someone who would be helpful with all these kinds of things. Right. Yeah. So this is how he how he gets on the radar of people like George Washington. I don't know if him and Aaron Burr... Oh, they, yeah, they would have met. They would have known each other because they were both from New York and they were both serving... Serving in the uh, the Continental Army during the Revolution. Um, a few side characters I kind of looked into just because I was curious. Um, so I mentioned John Lawrence, who was the anti-slavery guy, which they kind of went out of their way to kind of add because he's not a you know founding father name that people are familiar with. But we also see right. him mourning when that guy, that friend dies in battle. That was accurate. This friend did die young in battle. And I don't know if this showed up on your end, and maybe not because the Hamilton page is probably way longer than the John Lawrence page, but they were very close, very, very close 
not that anybody knows anything one way or another for sure, but also like people didn't write about this stuff. So people are basically like, hey, it's possible they were actually like more than friends, but at the same time, they could have just been best friends. But like they were just like kind of inseparable, hmm. more so than, than a lot of close male friendships at the time. But no one knows anything one way or the other. It's just speculation that it's possible there was a there was maybe a romantic relationship between those two. But obviously nothing ever comes of it, and, and John Lawrence does die young. They could have also just been, like, the best homies. No, absolutely. <laughs> right. It could be, uh, what's it, uh, in, uh, in Scrubs, you know, they're just like... Oh, right. Yeah. 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 Uh, the other one is Hercules Mulligan, which they go out of their way to name. Mm-hmm. And then later they show mm-hmm. him being a spy, and that is accurate. Her- Hercules Mulligan yeah. uh, was a spy on the colonial side against the British... Mm-hmm. He was part of a group. They called it uh, the Sons of Liberty. Yeah. Kind of an unofficial thing, though. Basically, any of the anti-British acting out would get kind of labeled as being under the umbrella of the Sons of Liberty. It wasn't necessarily like an official thing with, you know, membership dues. It, it wouldn't have had a website right. <laughs> kind of thing. That's the way that I kind of thought about it is, and not that I want to color either of these groups one way or the other by comparing them, just the way that the organization themselves are set up, but it's almost like Antifa. Right. It doesn't actually exist in like a structured way. Right. There's there's no official membership. You just kind of like do Antifa stuff, you know, the same way the Sons of Liberty were just kind of like doing anti-British stuff. And then also on, on the flip side of that, all of this anti-British action was then labeled that Sons of Liberty stuff by the British. Whether it was or not. Right. Even if they had any idea whether or not those people identify it's you know just right. like if you go to a protest and you see people wearing black with a black face mask and they're you know throwing rocks at cops or something and people say oh that's antifa it's like well like m- maybe that person <laughs> right is. right maybe maybe not but there's also no way to know because it's you're right they don't there's no memberships or like official group meetings there's no president of the sons of liberty that they could you know arrest and try for treason right exactly yeah it was just kind of a unofficial group right yeah and yeah so even stuff like the boston tea party would have been a sons of liberty action and all that kind of stuff right yeah did you see um one of the things about hercules mulligan that they said helped him be a more effective spy was that he could just drink people under the table no problem oh no i missed that that's funny yeah apparently he he would just like you know, he could go drink for drink with these, you know, like British military officials and they would just get super wasted and like spill their guts to him and he would be not as wasted <laughs> and then could, you know, then relay that relay that information. But I thought that was cool. And it, because also in the movie, they talk about there's mention of him, you know, drinking in that scene when, when we first meet him. OK, that's funny. The other thing to mention here then before we launch into the writing of the constitution and the kind of that side of things would be just a quick note on the Schuyler family. Mm. That was a very, very prominent family at the time that he married into. And yes, even though they leave out her older brothers or the sister's older brothers and kind of play up the romantic side that he had with the sister, it basically sounds like there's no evidence of that. They were just good friends, right? They weren't necessarily ever interested romantically yeah nothing nothing that i saw indicated that that him and the older sister i forget her name but the older sister were like romantically involved right um or that they that they wanted to be or or anything like that but i did think it was interesting so they go back they're an old school like original new york 
Dutch family, so of Dutch descent. So like New York City and the New York colony were originally, you know, it's like New Amsterdam and all that kind of stuff. So it was a Dutch colony that ended up getting taken over by the British to become New York. And the Schuyler family was there from the Dutch days and just kind of stayed around and were very prominent. And her father ends up being like the representative senator, state senator for New York that later Aaron Burr does run against uh, when we get into kind of the post-constitution stuff Hmm. so yeah we uh we win the war the british go home and again we will have talked about that previously Uh, we're gonna record it later but we will have talked we will have talked about it previously for people that have seen hamilton they're like you're skipping over like half of the movie right now it's like (laughs) yeah well you know that's a lot of history too right and we already talked about all that so right and like all the 1776 stuff i do think is interesting too that people like Hamilton and we'll get into Madison that they were just yeah. too young in 1776 to have been major right. players and actually I can't I think I even looked too so Jefferson was the young guy in 1776 because he was just 32 well yeah when we start to write the constitution in like 1787 Hamilton's 32 so he's like the young guy right. then so in 1776 yeah. when they're doing they're starting the fighting he's really young and Jefferson is like the seasoned like the seasoned right. experienced statesman who has all this experience. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, I, I don't know where we even want to start with the uh, Constitution times. <laughs> I, I guess we could start with the Articles of Confederation. Oh, yes. Which the which the film kind of leaves out, right? Yeah, yeah. Does it even mention them? I, not that I can remember, honestly. Right, I don't, I don't, th- I don't think it mentions the Articles of Confederation at all. If they, if they did, it would have been just a passing mention, because I can't right. think of any... I can't think of anything. They kind of just jump over it. it was mentioned. Yeah. So basically the Articles of Confederation were the laws of the new United States like right after the revolution. And they were, well, for the sake of simplicity and to like really simplify it, basically they had the federal government being very weak. There was a ton of power at the state level and almost none at the federal level. And for the federal government to do anything, it needed the approve, basically unanimous approval of all 13 states. And just like we saw in 1776, the states, like, would not agree on anything. And anything that they would agree on, like, by the time they, you know, hashed everything out and, and gave up enough concessions and compromises, nothing was going to get done. And so there was a, a group of statesmen, I guess, in the, in the new United States who saw basically the writing on the wall like hey if we don't like strengthen the federal government a little bit and like strengthen the glue that's holding these states together we're gonna have basically a civil war or at the very least like a best case scenario of just this united states nation is gonna break apart and just become like 13 individual countries right and where it really seemed to be an issue was with like you're trying to do international trade and treaties and then all of a sudden who's speaking on behalf of all 13 colonies then and you can't get them to agree and you're trying to make a trade deal with european countries who you have this you know history with and it just doesn't work because you have no federal entity that can speak on your behalf the note that i kind of made just to kind of help me get my head around it and you kind of already said it is that it sounds like the government the national government in the times of the Articles of Confederation, basically did operate exactly like the First Continental Congress and Second Continental Congress as far as the states having all the power, one state, one vote, and very simple, but you needed at least a two-thirds majority, if not unanimous, approval to get anything done. And that, yeah, basically outside of winning the war, 
there's not much else they could do because they couldn't agree on anything past that and couldn't raise taxes at the federal level and anything like that. And it sounds kind of silly and anti-common sense, like, well, yeah, of course you need a federal government that can lend money and make treaties and deal with international partners and all this stuff. But keep in mind that at the time, they had just gotten out from under the boot heel of a very strong centralized government, and there were there was massive hesitance to give that much power to a government because they were like, well, if we give that much power to like a a single person or even just a small group of people, like that can turn tyrannical really, really fast. And so we would rather just have this really weak and emaciated federal government that we can like drown in the bathtub if we need to, if it like, you know, gets squirrely. But yeah, they didn't want you know, they they wanted to have more power in the states because they thought that that would be kind of a better way of operating. But Hamilton was actually one of the one of the leading people that was like, no, we need to have a strong federal government. He got a lot of pushback from people saying, well, you're just a monarchist. You just want another another king. He did more so than others. Maybe he was kind of more OK with making. Yeah, but he Washington. His argument was, well, it's not a king if they're elected and then you can elect somebody else after. Right. But he was almost okay with them being temporary king-like. Hamilton more so than others, yeah. Yeah, right. They, you know, the, the whole monarchist sentiment also came because he actually favored, you know, strengthening diplomatic and economic ties with the British. And people say, well, why do you want, you know, we just got done fighting a war with these people. Why are we gonna, you know, now be their pals? And he said, well, because it's in our best interest economically as a nation. And he was kind of right. But right for that reason, and also because he wanted to have someone at the top of the federal government who had a lot of power, people called him a monarchist, and he was actually really disliked for that by a lot of people. Yes, I mean, the, the big conflict of this whole time period, like the, the, the closing decades, and actually, I was gonna say the closing decades of the 18th century, but then even then into the beginning of the 19th century, this conflict yeah. just kind of persisted between, right. well, I mean, I say that, I mean, the whole states' rights versus federal stuff was pretty much pervasive up and through even i mean a little bit today but even into the 1960s and stuff like that with civil rights and yep. and so it's kind of been a fight we've never been able to let go and it seems like well it's been a couple hundred years it's like yeah but like yesterday was only a day ago and so like that's just kind of always been the case and then so at some point it's hard to get these things to change and we're fighting the same battles year after year and it's uh, already coming back to relevance and even more so with the whole, you know, repealing Roe versus Wade that's coming up and how much power the federal government should have to enact that versus, you know, should we leave that in the states? And yeah, so this is this is the foundation of st- stuff like slavery, civil rights, all of this, you know, federal government versus states power. All of it goes back to these debates and discussions that Alexander Hamilton was having with people like Thomas Jefferson when they were writing the Constitution. My one note that I would make just in, in general and in broad strokes and all those kinds of things, I say the I think the biggest difference, I feel like today when people advocate for states' rights, it's a cover to pass unpopular policies. Because today, unlike 200 years ago, people see themselves as, I feel like, Generally speaking, people see themselves as American first, who then an American who happens to live in said state versus 200 years ago, you saw yourself as a Virginian first and then understood that Virginia was part of the United States. And I feel like that's a shift that's happened over the last 200 years. And people are being a little bit disingenuous 
when they argue for states' rights nowadays, and it's just a way to get unpopular policies passed. I think that that pendulum might actually be swinging the other way. Oh, where people do start to identify themselves as Georgians first yeah. or whatever. Given the amount of, you know, divide and lack of common ground that's just been widening and widening, especially in the last 10 or 20 years, I think uh, there is a lot more sentiment of, oh, I'm like a Texan. I'm from Arizona. I'm a Californian. Like, yeah, you know, those people say they're American, but it's like, yeah, I'm an American from California. I'm an American from Arizona. I'm an American from Florida. Like, I think that that is becoming a way bigger part of people's identity is what state they are actually from. We're also starting to flirt very dangerously with the problems of recording so far ahead of time. So (laughs) who knows? So we're recording. This is June of 2022 for us. So like they just had the first of like the January 6th congressional hearings. And who knows where things go. We might be in the midst of a civil war by the time this airs. So those of you still tuning in to History and Film during the hellscape of what wants to see the United States, we welcome you. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, back to the Articles of Confederation. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So uh, because of all of the issues that we just talked about with the Articles of Confederation, there started to be support for a new constitution. And the biggest way that this was that this sentiment was kind of pushed out to the public was through the publication of essays called the Federalist Papers. And they were published under a pen name, Publius, but that was a pen name. Basically, the the contributor, Hamilton was a major contributor to the Federalist Papers, as well as John Jay and James Madison. And actually, like, even though they were under a pen name, like most of the public knew that these at least Hamilton. It was an open secret who was writing this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So even though he never said like, oh, I am Publius, it's like, oh yeah, all these essays just came out talking about how shit the Articles of Confederation are, how we need this constitution. And also Alexander Hamilton just also happens to be all about a new constitution. Like, you know, people weren't dumb. So they, these, uh, the Federalist Papers rebuked the Articles of Confederation, talked about how ineffective they were and how they were going to lead to all these issues. And then kind of point by point went through the proposals in the new constitution and talked about how each one of those would benefit the general public to kind of explain what the thought process was behind the constitution. Instead of just saying, oh, yeah, we got rid of the Articles of Confederation, this new constitution, it's the law of the land, and deal with it. Well, I guess I thought it was a little more, and maybe I read it wrong, or maybe we're saying the same thing, that generally speaking, when they met for this constitutional convention, Everyone agreed they were going to do a new thing with the divisions of power and have, you know, the the three branches and all that. But it was more just than the details of the actual Constitution itself that they were trying to get passed. Like, I think the Articles was already done. Everyone kind of knew that was done. But even if the Federalist Papers failed, we were still going to have something. It's just whether what it looked like. And I thought Hamilton was arguing specifically yeah. for the version that ends up getting ratified. Is that all about the same thing, though? I think you might be right. But also there's there's a certain unity in the Federalist Papers and in the Continental Congress because you have, you know, Hamilton and James Madison both wrote, you know, both contributed to the Federalist Papers and both and, you know, Madison, Madison is basically considered like the father of the Constitution. He wrote a bunch of it. But then later on, they're on opposite sides as far as Democratic Republicans versus Federalists. Like Hamilton was a Federalist and 
And James Madison was was a Democratic Republican with Jefferson. So because of the failures of the Articles of Confederation, even the most ardent states' rights supporters still recognized the need for a stronger federal government than what we had. Correct. And so you would have Madison writing this stuff. But then when it comes yeah. down to what that actually looks like, there is a divide there and some want a much stronger than others. Okay, that makes sense. Right. So in the play, we don't meet Jefferson and Madison until the second half. So after the intermission. So the first half is kind of the beginnings of Hamilton, his relationship with his wife, him kind of coming to power with Washington and all that kind of stuff and the Revolutionary War. And that's kind of the first half. And it's so much a divide that even like the guy playing Lafayette, which, again, is another one who we will have talked about <laughs> once this airs. Uh, David Diggs. Yeah, it plays in uh, Jefferson in the second half. Yeah, David Diggs, I, I think, might be my favorite performance. Yes, oh, actually, I agree. I'm on board with him as well. I, I love David Diggs. And actually, I, I mean, he's been in a bunch of movies and stuff since. Hamilton, actually, I, I think it helped him blow up because he's been in a lot of stuff since. And I like everything that he's in. I, I'm there for it. I love his performances. He's an immensely talented actor. Yeah, so he's he's Jefferson, not Madison. Because also, didn't the Hercules Mulligan guy play Madison in the second half? Yeah. Yeah. So Jefferson, I, I did talk a little bit about his early days with our 1776 discussion. I have a little more to add, but he's it's kind of a simple life. There's not, there's. I mean, he's important and he was crazy smart, but I mean, his life wasn't necessarily that exciting. <laughs> so we always kind of talk about who we could potentially nominate if we do a tournament again for most interesting person in American history, like we did with world history. And uh, I hate to say it, but like Jefferson's probably not <laughs> making it very far in, yeah, in such, I, such, a, <laughs> such a tournament there. Despite his influence on no, right. how America was shaped, he's not an interesting guy. Right. He's important, <laughs> but he's kind of boring. Yeah. So like the phrase, I did watch like a little bit of a documentary about to kind of get some notes here too. So once he kind of got back from France, and he, he had a lot of tragedy in his life, both before and after he spent a lot of time in France as like an early ambassador for the fledgling United States. But like his dad died when he was 14. His best friend dies in 1773. His wife dies in 1782. I mean, five of his six kids died before he did. And so this is a guy who's just like was always kind of dealing with these tragedies. Now I say five of his six kids, that's five of his legitimate kids with Martha. Uh, not his children that he all but certainly had with Sally Hemming. Yeah. And I'll get to that in a second here, too. And so, yeah, despite being a man of privilege, uh, Jefferson always kind of did a lot to advocate for the little guy. A lot of the laws he passed within Virginia in his capacity there was like lessening the power of aristocrats, basically making stuff like where in, in inheritance issues, elder sons were not automatically given preference just by virtue of being the eldest son. But he's also, what they mentioned in that documentary I watched was that he's a man of contradictions. So he was not a fan of slavery at all. He hated slavery, but he had slaves. And you can be like, well, you know, people at the time, it's like, no, no, no. Other Virginians were freeing their slaves at his time, and he did not. And so he's like, against slavery, his neighbors are freeing their slaves. And he's like, eh. So is it like a slavery's bad, except for me, it's awesome? <laughs> <laughs> almost like climate change people taking private jets all around to talk about climate change <laughs> that kind of thing maybe I, I don't know they say it's hard to say it's hard to really know jefferson's mind on that kind of stuff he did he did write things like again i hate to use the phrase white supremacy we we're talking about people who lived 200 years ago but like he 
straight up did feel that whites were superior to blacks and not in like an arrogant way in like a it's science way because that was the common thought at the time and then yeah so in the sally hemming thing it's basically it's it's all but a hundred percent because basically the circumstantial evidence is off the charts like oh yeah sally hemmings had kids with someone who was directly related to thomas jefferson if not himself who was like it's like if it's not Jefferson, yeah. it's like his secret first cousin who was sneaking in when no one saw. Like it's it was Jefferson. Right. We don't know a hundred hundred percent, but we know like ninety nine point nine percent that it was Jefferson right. fathering these kids. Yeah, and also that was too. It wasn't like we've uncovered this in the twentieth and twenty first centuries. It's like no, no, no. People were writing about it in the papers at the time to slander him. Yes, it was an open scandal, and he yeah. never. I don't think even never publicly denied it, but nor did he publicly admit it. And so right. it's just kind of this thing that's kind of uh, not talked about when you learn about them in grade school, but definitely a thing. And she had been his slave for like a long time. Like, so anyways. Right. Which, you know, also means that uh, consent is at best highly dubious. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there, yeah, there's, there's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but so this actually this actually brings up uh that thing that I was going to say earlier where it's, you know, people have a uh they want they level this criticism at, at the musical Hamilton. They say that oh well it, you know, it makes Thomas Jefferson and other slave owners like George Washington, I don't know who else in <laughs> everybody but Hamilton and Adams, right? <laughs> pretty much everybody. I mean, yeah. except for Hamilton, I guess, but like just about everybody else, um, you know, like it makes them look awesome. It makes them look super cool, and they do kind of talk about slavery a little bit, but it's like, people say, well, what? why are we making these slave owners look sympathetic? Mm. And to that, I would say, I don't necessarily think that they are endorsing the slavery part of that person's life. Right. I think that anyone can can look at that and say that's despicable and evil and wrong. But like I saw, so there's an interview with David Diggs, who played Thomas Jefferson. And not that it matters, but he's also black. And he says, you know, in the musical, they wanted to show that, like, Thomas Jefferson wrote these very influential documents and basically works of art that are the foundation of our government that espouse good ideas. And also, he sucks. Also, he's like a shitty guy for owning slaves and, like, probably being a rapist, too. (laughs) But, like, those things... Just both can be true. We've talked about this with like right, Churchill, exactly. like with like Churchill. Yes. Churchill was a hero of World War II and also kind of Crimean racist at times. Both are true. Right. Exactly. Right. Or like, you know, Napoleon. He made sure that a bunch of kids got to go to high school because he made it universal. That's great. Uh, he also had some like very blatantly sexist laws. That's bad. Both of those things are true. So I don't I don't think that the musical is necessarily like being a Jefferson apologist by making him, you know, have cool lines. Cause he's not saying like, it's not a, it's not about the shitty part. It's, it's just focusing on the other stuff. And I, that's why I say, even though I don't necessarily agree with it, like I can see how there are people who are like, well, they shouldn't focus just on the good part. Then they should also, you know, give us a more complete picture. They should call them out on the shitty parts. Yeah. Right. Right. It's also like a musical and there's like not a lot of time for that necessarily. And it also comes back to the whole dangers of applying modern morality to the past. And it's just not as black and white as that. It's way more complicated than that. 
I'm not saying you can't criticize, right? but I think you shouldn't demonize. Oh, I'm saying go ahead and demonize. Go ahead and say that he's shit. Like, oh. <laughs> say that it's totally fine that you're like, oh, he, you know, he's a horrible monster for having slaves and sexually assaulting one of them, you know, numerous times. Like, yeah, that sucks. That guy is, that makes him a kind of a piece of shit, but he had some good ideas about government too. And like, that's what the musical's about, I guess, is the government stuff. Right, he's an important and does our country exist in the same way without him and all those kinds of things. Yeah, it turns out, again, as we've said a million times, history is complicated. Then the flip side, then the other side of the whole Constitution, and this is one, I guess, man, this is, I don't know how I kind of missed this. So as much as we talk about Thomas Jefferson being like the guy for the Declaration of Independence, in my mind, I never saw that there was an equal the guy for the Constitution, but... There kind of is. People say Madison, right? It's Madison. Not that, yes, it was more collaborative than the Declaration of Independence was, but Madison is called the father of the Constitution. And like he did, like a lot of those, like the basic things of a House and a Senate and checks and balances and the Bill of Rights, that's all Madison. Yes, obviously it was collaborative, but like it really is uh, Madison kind of driving what we see with the Constitution. And again, why did we not see him earlier in 1776? Because he was only 25 years old in 1776. Right. So then again, by the time you get, you know, uh, a decade later, he's in his mid-30s when we're writing the, the Constitution. So I think now initially, there's like the Virginia plan. I think the other one was maybe it was the Rhode Island plan or the New Jersey plan. And then you end up having the Great Compromise. The whole idea is like, we did want the two houses of Congress, but I think Madison was like, they'll both be proportionate. And then the big fight and compromise was that like, okay, well, what if one's proportionate and one is right. fixed at two, which is why today we do have a proportional House of Representatives right. and a two senators per state Senate. And then the big thing that I did not realize is that the Bill of Rights was like, wait, not way, but like way after the fact. Yeah. The Constitution passes, we have a first president. And then, like, three years later, they add the Bill of Rights. And there was, like, a whole debate as to, like, well, why do we need the Bill of Rights? Why do we need to enshrine this stuff? Why do we need to explicitly state this stuff? Like, the Constitution, like, people should already understand that they have those rights in the Constitution that we already have. And and, and so it sounds like it was actually kind of ties into the whole debate we just said at this time was between the strong federal government and states' rights. And so when we do kind of end up having this very, very strong federal government, the way to appease those who were concerned about the tyranny of a strong federal government was to list, to amend the Constitution. That's why they're called the Ten Amendments. And actually, even the term Bill of Rights is like from the 20th century. They would have just called them the amendments Mm -hmm. uh, at the time. And it's just kind of itemizing, okay, here's the things the federal government cannot under any circumstances take right. from you and so that's why well of course then anyway we don't, I don't want to get too 21st century political about it but you know there's a fourth amendment that says no you know unreasonable search and seizures without a warrant and all that kind of stuff and then like the supreme court just said yeah it's okay if like we got to like look for people so ice could just go into homes wherever they want if it's within 100 miles of the border which is where two-thirds of the country lives but we won't go yeah. into that right now <laughs> yeah that's also why it it's like uh, you know when you look at it, it can seem kind of strange when you read the first sentiment, like when you read the Bill of Rights, it's like, okay, like freedom of speech, I understand, like, okay, right to a, you know, jury trial, yeah, okay, yeah, that should be a guaranteed right, unreasonable search and seizures, right, gotta protect it from that, 
And but then there's like a whole amendment specifically about how soldiers can't quarter themselves in your home. It's like that's straight. Why is that in there next to the other stuff? And it's like, well, you know, because they just got done fighting a war where soldiers were going into people's homes, and so they wanted to make sure that the government couldn't do that anymore. Yeah, exactly. That like during the Revolutionary War, the British soldiers could be like just marching through a field. Oh, there's a farmhouse. We will just stay there overnight. Right. Yeah. And basically, now so they have the the war rights. Like, okay, we're gonna have a strong federal government. If we have to move troops from the new Ohio territory or whatever down to Virginia, they can't just stay in random people's houses without permission. Right. Yeah. Like we have to actually write that down. Otherwise it would happen. <laughs> so that's why, that's why that's in there. But it is, you know, it is yes. a little, uh, you know, it seems odd. Right. Right. Yeah. It seems, it seems odd looking back on it, you know, 200 plus years later. And then just a couple, just two more notes on Madison as a person. So his wife was, it was kind of famous when he eventually becomes president, he does become the fourth president, and that's actually outside of the scope of this uh, this story. But his wife is Dolly Madison, who was almost kind of like the first Jackie O type in the sense that she was like considered the party hostess, and they would have all kinds oh, of right. gatherings, and she was like the great hostess at the White House and stuff there. Which I think by Madison it was the White House, right? Because you get into the War of eighteen twelve. Yes, because the War of eighteen twelve, they burned, they did, they burned down the White House. And I was thinking of even stories like Dolly Madison, like carrying stuff out of there and stuff. Yeah, and then. She was 21 years younger than him. I mean, probably just more common at the time, not that big a deal. But what I also saw, and actually I forgot to, I saw it on a YouTube video, so I've actually forgot to verify this uh, somewhere else. But it said he was the smallest president that James Madison was supposedly five foot four and, quote, never hit 100 pounds. Oh, so just a short king, just an absolute manlet. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, yeah, I just don't know many guys that have never hit 100 pounds. Obviously, people were smaller 200 years ago and that kind of thing. But just, yeah, even yeah, at, it sounds like James Madison was the smallest president ever. Even at 5'4", to not weigh 100 pounds. There's no way. Look at pictures. Look at the paintings of him. He's like a round guy. Even at 5'4", he'd be over 100 pounds. Okay, so maybe that's not, I, I, yeah, it was just like some YouTube documentary I was watching. But it was like a, like it was one that was put out by... I feel like a reputable. I don't know. I I can also see someone like using that as a like being hyperbolic and saying, "Oh yeah, he never hit a hundred pounds." Like saying, "Oh he's he's a hundred pounds soaking wet." Like even if he only weighed like one thirty, like that's still small. Or hey, through thirty, forty years old, he did stay under a hundred, but then you know he got heavier in his old. Yeah, all those kinds of things are possible. Um, yeah, I guess probably spent too much time talking about <laughs> the weight of James Madison, but. <laughs> Um, so you you brought up the White House, and the White House is in Washington D.C. And the reason that we have a Washington D.C. at all is actually partially attributable to part of that compromise, right? To Hamilton, and it was during the I think it was was it during the um, when they were talking about the wasn't the, it part of the Virginia Compromise and stuff like that? Or yeah, so so basically the the at the time the capital was New York City, which Hamilton was all about because he was from New York City. He's New York New York guy. And so he, you know, was totally content with the capital staying there, but a lot of the southerners and Thomas Jefferson in particular wanted the capital moved further south so that it could be more at a you know, more centrally located in the colonies because you think, you know, I think the furthest south colonies what Georgia. So think of like, you know, right. go trying to go from Florida panhandle to New York City to get to the capital, you know, in 1800 like that's it's right you know it's like double the distance so they they ended up jefferson 
like basically gave some concessions on policy if Hamilton and the New Yorkers agreed to move the capital further south. So it then moved to Philly kind of as an interim, and then they formed the District of Columbia, which was a federal district specifically to house the federal government. So a brand new city and, of course, largely built by slave labor. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so that's that's just something else that another thing that Alexander Hamilton, you know, and Thomas Jefferson had a hand in the location of and the formation of D.C. And like, there's just so much stuff. OK, um, so get in, get into a little bit then as far as the Hamilton side of things during the Washington administration, being the secretary of treasury and anything you had on that. So not, not a not a ton, but it's important as the secretary of the treasury and as a federalist, he wanted a. A uh, strong national government, and one of the things that he knew that needed to happen, or one of the things that he knew he needed to do in order to get that to happen, was for the United States government to have national credit, because he knew that without national credit, without demonstrating to other foreign nations that the United States could pay off its debt, no one was going to invest mm. money in economic relationships with the United States. That makes sense. Okay. So one of the things that he that he was all about was centralizing debt, but people that were states' rights people were not necessarily happy about that because the federal government taking on states' debts would, it wouldn't be equal. Favor the states more in debt. Right, it would favor the states that were more in debt, namely New York. Um, And so people say, well, you're just... Right, so then all of a sudden the South is paying for New York's debts. Exactly. But while that was true, it was also a good idea because then that allowed the United States government to pay off those debts, which then demonstrated to other countries like, you know, European powers, oh, okay, this country is serious. They are a legit economy. They can pay debts. So now we'll have, you know, economic relationships with them. And it was kind of something he was adamant about, and he was kind of in the minority, but ultimately wins out, right? Yes. And he got a lot of pushback from like Jefferson, who was the first Secretary of State, who again was a Democratic Republican, but a lot more of a states' rights guy. But he ended up he ended up winning out. Um, and then I was a little confused. Having a federal line of credit with other countries is that directly related to the establishment of the first national bank of the United States, or is that kind of a separate thing that was still under his purview? Um, I get confused by all that stuff. So I'm going to disclaimer this by saying <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, but if <laughs> if, okay. I, if I had to try and guess, I would say that you would need a national bank to be able to do that, right? Yeah. So where I was confused, and again, I'll, I'll just, yeah, again, same thing, preface. I don't know what I'm talking about. I get confused by all this national, federal uh, financial stuff. So I guess in my mind, I thought, oh, Hamilton must have been like the guy who founded like the Federal Reserve. And I'm like, oh, no, the Federal Reserve was started in 1913. And the first bank of the United States that started under Hamilton collapsed in 1813 or whatever right after the Jefferson administration. And then so I'm like, okay, yeah, I don't understand any of this. Yeah, I, the whole like federal, federal monetary policy is, yeah, not only something that I don't know anything about, it's also like, incredibly boring to learn about. And so it's like, I don't know, like, as a citizen, I should probably have at least a working understanding of how that works. But I just don't. Yeah. So I guess the answer is we we don't know, but we also don't really care that we don't know. <laughs> oh no, like I know that I should know, I just haven't. Okay. <laughs> Cuz like why would I read about the Federal Reserve when I could just go watch Community all the way through for like a third time, you know? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, so the, this is a little more history in film than history right. in film. Yeah. We like movies more than we like research. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's get into and we kind of, because we kind of need to start like steering this ship to to an end here. Uh, so let's. You want to start talking about Aaron Burr? Exactly. So we need to get to okay. what brings this whole real whole reason this story is even kind yeah. of interesting is because it ends in murder. Right. So I will I will start here real quick and then kick it to you. Okay. Just talking about that the election of eighteen hundred. So you had two terms of Washington. Adams wins in seventeen ninety six, and then in eighteen hundred Jefferson kind of comes out of semi-retirement right. to run against Adams, his one-time friend, who are now they're on very, very opposite sides. So again, Adams was with Hamilton and kind of a Federalist, and Jefferson was very much against that. So he runs against Adams. Burr is also running, and he and Adams kind of split the vote on the Federalist side, and Jefferson is in the lead, but it's kind of not a three-way tie, but it's basically Jefferson doesn't hit the Electoral College threshold, and so it's going to be this big fight in Congress to break the log jam. No, they were tied. They were tied. Oh, they were actually tied? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, dang. I was thinking Jefferson was slightly ahead. They were actually tied? No, so so the, the way that the Constitution was written, and they later changed this because of this specific election, where they were like, oh, this is bad. Okay. This can't happen again. <laughs> uh, so the way that the Constitution was written, whoever got the most electoral votes was the president and whoever got the second most was vice president and so the only reason initially when jefferson was running burr was running too but was saying oh i'm only running to get the second most votes so i can be the vice president well him and jefferson ended up getting the exact same number of votes Uh. and then jefferson looks at burr like oh okay so all you need to do is concede and then i can be the president you're the vice president and burr's like yeah but i am not going to um, maybe I can actually be the president. (laughs) And his thought was, well, maybe I can convince enough Federalists in the House to vote for me, because even though I'm also a Democratic Republican... Basically bail on Adams, because Adams has lost cause now, so bail on Adams and join Burr. It was going to be one... They had... Because they tied, they both got the the most, and they both tied. So it was going to be one or the other. Oh, no, right. But I'm saying Adams votes. Adams people could go to Burr, though, right? Oh, right. And basically he's saying, like, hey, look, like, yeah, I know you don't... You don't want me as a president because I'm not in your party, but you definitely don't want Jefferson to be your president because he's like way more hardcore, way more of a hardliner Democratic Republican than I am. And you would have started seeing a lot of stuff in the paper about his Sally Hemings stuff and other things exactly. and all this stuff bashing Jefferson, right? So he was then campaigning in Congress to try and get the Federalists to side with him because at the time the House was controlled by the Federalists. But then Hamilton the big-time Federalists, came out and said, well, I definitely don't want Aaron Burr to be president, so I, Alexander Hamilton, am going to support Thomas Jefferson in the House election. Who I disagree with on every policy. Right. And the irony was not lost on him. Like, he fully understood that it was crazy what he was doing, you know, just because of the policy differences between them. But he was like, you know, basically, we got I have to defeat Aaron Burr at all costs. Because he considered Aaron Burr to just be completely self-serving. And actually, there were a lot of people that thought that because Aaron Burr was kind of like the first politician, and I'm putting that in air quotes, 
because he was the first person to actually like go door to door and say you should vote for me oh you should vote for me for president right that wasn't a thing that's considered kind of low class yeah right and talk about how great he was and people were like oh that is tasteless that is ungentlemanly like that is right very gauche people did not like that which you know that's what every politician does now right but originally you're supposed to be nominated by someone else not right say, you don't say i should run yes. someone else says oh yes i nominate the gentleman right. from new jersey yeah yeah the person who was getting elected was supposed to be humble and say oh you know it is yeah, exactly. it is a great honor for this you know position to be bestowed upon me by the people but aaron burr was like uh no you guys should vote for me i'm the best i want it yeah yeah i want it yeah and he had already won for run for Senate in, in uh, New York and booted Hamilton's yes. father-in-law. So Hamilton just didn't like him, didn't like his uh, his attitude. And so he said, OK, I'm going to back Jefferson, which then led to Jefferson being elected. They changed the Constitution so that couldn't happen anymore. And then also Aaron Burr, even though he was the vice president then after the 1800 election, because he tried to pull that, Jefferson was like, yeah, I'm not. I'm not giving you any authority. I'm not giving you power. Like, you are the vice president, but, like, you have no place in this administration. You can break a tie in the Senate. That is yep. all you will ever do yeah. kind of thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was, like, the first big conflict between Aaron Burr and Hamilton. And then because Aaron Burr, you know, basically was just sitting around not doing anything as a vice president for four years, he decided to, and, well, and because of that, he knew that he for sure was not going to be on the ticket in 1804, that he was, Thomas Jefferson was not going to allow him to run with him. So he instead decided to run for governor of New York, but he ended up losing to Morgan Lewis. And that was because even though Hamilton didn't have very much power at this point, the power that he did have was in New York and he used it to campaign against Burr and keep him from becoming governor. And Aaron Burr was big mad. Oh, and that's not in the play then either, is it? I don't think so. I don't think they talk about it. I think they make it just about the presidency stuff yeah. in the play, it, it, which makes sense. You kind of simplify the reason for the hate. Right. So it wasn't even just the one thing like yeah. it is in the play or the one big thing. But yeah. So ha- Aaron Burr was big mad that this was like the second time that he lost because of Alexander Hamilton. Uh. So that's when he then challenges him to a duel, which the whole duel itself, like we see in the movie, Hamilton's son was also killed in a duel. I wondered, okay. At the same dueling spot in New Jersey, too, like two years earlier. Oh, wow. There is a lot of stuff written about this duel between Burr and Hamilton, but so much of it is one side or the other that, like, pretty much the only stuff we know for sure is there was a duel, there were two shots fired, Burr was not hit, Hamilton was hit, Hamilton died the next day. But, like, as far as this stuff, like, oh, Hamilton was going to throw away his shot, but then decided not to, or he didn't even mean to fire, or he thought he didn't fire, or he wore his glasses so that he could have better aim, or, you know, mm. Burr was out to, was actually out for blood, or, you know, Burr wasn't, like, there's so much stuff written on both sides that it's like, at this point, literally impossible to determine, like, what the circumstances actually were. But yeah, like I said, there were two shots fired. Whether or not Hamilton missed or it was a throwaway shot or he got shot while he was getting hit or something, okay. no one is ever going to know for sure. But yeah, so that was on July 11th, and then he died on the 12th after being taken back to New York. What year then? Was this like 1801 or, or sorry? Uh, eight, 1804. 1804, okay. Yeah, because okay. yeah, it was the same. Yeah, it was the, the 
it was right after, well, not right after, but shortly after the uh, election in 1804. Is when the governor's election. Oh, the election wasn't in election day. wasn't in November yet. No, I think it wasn't at this time. wasn't inauguration. was in like March or something. Oh, because it made sense to have more time between election day and inauguration day when there's like no cars and planes and stuff or TV. Yeah, I, I'm not even sure if that's why. I just know that it was at a different time yeah. then, and they changed it later on. Okay, but yeah, so uh, Hamilton then ended up dying um, on July 12th, 1804, in New York. And the reason that they had to do the duel in New Jersey was because dueling was illegal in New York, but it was still legal in New Jersey, so they went to New Jersey, did the duel, and that was the only reason that Aaron Burr was able to escape murder charges, was because technically it was legal. I was thinking he was initially charged and then they were dropped or something, but at least he was arrested, maybe. Yeah, but it, I mean, the, the reason that he wasn't, like, hanged for it. Oh, right, right, because he technically wasn't breaking the law, right. Well, yeah, he was let go, but his political career was over. He, uh, his daughter... Theodosia Burr Alston, who I they talk about, well, it, his wife, Theodosia, this daughter is named after her. Okay. His daughter, Theodosia Burr Alston, is like a very famous disappearance at sea incident in 1813. Oh, interesting. She got on a ship on New Year's Eve, December, uh, yeah, December 31st, 1812, with like her fiance, and then was never seen again. Huh. And there, but, and there are like, multiple conspiracy theories on like what happened to her or where she might have gone or there's also like a painting that is dated like after she disappeared uh-huh. it looks like her and it was like hanging in this place i was like hey, i think that's the dojo where that painting from it's like this whole thing well also too like think how missing persons would have worked 200 years ago like anybody could go missing at any time you would just yeah. never see them again yeah like that's crazy. Whether whether intentionally, you know, whether kidnapped or whether they just wanted to disappear. If you just wanted to disappear in 1813, yeah. that'd be easy to do. <laughs> very, very easy to do. Yeah. And then I wanted to... So Aaron Burr, his demise is almost too good. Like, it's almost like someone was writing his life as a movie. So at the age of 77, he marries... This woman, Eliza Jumel, who's 19 years younger than him, marries her for her money. As soon as they get married, she realizes all my money is disappearing because Aaron Burr is making horrible financial decisions. So she decides to divorce him four months after they're married. And she hires Alexander Hamilton Jr. as her divorce lawyer. (laughs) Then, in 1834... Burr suffers a stroke that immobilizes him. That was actually the same year that she officially separated from him. And then in 1836, he dies on the same day that his divorce is finalized by Alexander Hamilton Jr. <laughs> oh, man. that's Isn't that wild? Yeah, that's kind of poetic in a weird way. Yeah, yeah. I had, a, I had just a quick note on dueling at the time. You mentioned it was kind of outlawed except for in New Jersey. And a lot of the laws, and it's kind of unclear it's like there the whole world was kind of dealing with the same thing where it was kind of basically dueling just fell out of favor so yes there were laws outlawing it you know but those laws were very inconsistently enforced and different varied from place to place so again you could be like okay we go to a certain spot in new jersey and it's allowed yeah where it was illegal a lot of times those laws were rarely enforced and but you know france and uk and all the rest of the world were kind of dealing with these kinds of things it was just kind of a it was just the thing to do. It was just the norm to do. Right. But it just kind of basically fell out of favor and just became probably kind of like if you get into like the, uh, you know, Enlightenment Reformation, it just it starts to slowly just 
seem uncivilized. Right. And then specifically in the United States, what kind of really just killed dueling in the United States was the Civil War. Oh, really? And after the Civil War, it just seemed like, that's just dumb. We just have to stop killing each other over stupid crap. Huh. It was already falling out of favor. And then we all go to the Civil War and we come out of the Civil War. It's basically done. And it also did. So it also had lingered longer in the South, though, too. So you could definitely see if the last place it was really kind of halfway common was the South. And then the South goes into the Civil War. The last thing they're going to do is come back from losing the Civil War and then start killing each other over little disputes when they just lost yeah. so many people, too. So I think that's kind of why it was, is credited with being kind of the end of dueling. But again, it was kind of more of a falling out of fashion thing more than it was a legal huh. thing that killed it. And then my last note here was on wrapping up Jefferson. So again, he had had a lot of loss in his life and just kind of retires to Monticello after the presidency, uh, which is his you know whole house. He was famously an architect and Monticello was a place that was kind of like something he was always working on and never actually finished. It was just kind of like a constant project where he where he lived there. Um, and then he and Adams, we mentioned they were kind of friends pre or during like revolutionary times. And in the movie 1776, they're, they're good friends and working together. When you get into the establishment of the United States and the Constitution and their and their presidencies, they're on rival, big major rivalries. They kind of still respect each other, but they just have no time for each other's policies and they adamantly disagree on everything. As they get into their retirement years, I think it was Adams reached out first and writes a letter to Jefferson hmm. and basically like an olive branch, just like, hey, we should talk. And I don't know if they ever, I don't think they ever actually met together again face to face. Mm -hmm. But during the final 14 years of their lives, it was just constant correspondence of them sharing letters back and forth for 14 years. And those are actually some of the most important early United States documents that we still have because I don't know if we have all of. We have these letters though, these Jefferson to Adams letters and back and forth for 14 years. Um, as they kind of reconciled and just kind of would talk about their lives and debate, you know, the infant United States and all these kinds of things. And it was it was a major reconciliation between these uh, friends turned enemy turned friends again as they were in the final years of their lives. Then they famously managed almost as perfectly then die on the same day, yeah, July 4th. <laughs> 50 years to the day. 1826. Yep. 50 years to the day after in the first Independence Day, these friends die at basically, you know, just hours apart. So very poetic there. Uh, the play itself, again, it's amazing. It won everything. It didn't get the normal treatment where it's been turned into a regular film, but they did film you know, the couple of productions and cut them together and it is available on Disney Plus where we watched it. It's an absolute must see. Did we ever, I, I know we we talked about it on our best movies of 2021, but have we ever on this podcast discussed why each of us thinks it is or is not a movie? I honestly don't have the strongest feelings about it as like Aaron and Cody when we talked about it on uh, Track Nerds. So like, I did not include it as eligible for my best of 2020 mm-hmm. movies or whatever, but I also don't have a big beef with anyone who does. Of course, I feel like when we were talking to Cody and Aaron about it, they were like, no, right. it doesn't count. Uh, so I didn't count it for me personally, but I wouldn't begrudge someone who did count it because I kind of see the argument. And why Why did you not count it? I, <laughs> I don't consider it a movie because it's filmed before a live audience. And it's just an, a couple of performances of a play in front of an audience that were edited together to be released so other people could see it. 
that's not a movie. But I also could argue, and so, I guess I also see the merits right. in the argument that, yes, what defines a movie, and we could decide to film our movie in front of an audience, and that doesn't make it any less a movie. And you're not wrong. I just don't feel that right. way. Well, and, and my argument against that is even though it's, it, it, you know, people say, oh, well, it's just filming a stage play. And my argument is, well, it's more than that because it's actually, it's multiple performances, number one. And there are also shots, like in, if you go on Disney Plus and watch the movie, you know, Hamilton, like there are shots in there that were, that were not in front of a, a live audience that were specifically for the movie. And then also there are, scenes where there are camera movements, edits, pans that add to the story, the visual storytelling that you can only have in a movie that are additions to the stage play. That's my argument as to why it's a movie is because there's extra stuff. And I think it's, it's for me, it comes down to maybe intentionality that it's just like, hey, we have this play. Let's take this existing play and then film it to make a sure movie version of it but it's really just isn't the play so so it's intentionality yeah but isn't that exactly what like 12 angry men is or macbeth uh tragedy macbeth right but you take out the audience and you and you change the the film format to make it not seem like it's on a stage and you there's kind of a transition there the other thing too is i guess you're gonna say to, guess, to make your argument work i feel like too like oh hey we're going to make this movie let's first make a play that's really successful and then film the movie so so it's intentionality as far as like the production process what leads to a movie getting filmed it is not let's have a hit broadway play first it's like no you write a script and you film a movie and you figure out location stuff so it's basically taking something that already exists and then turning it into something that can serve as a movie but that's from a production standpoint that's not how movies are made it's more like it's 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 you incidentally made a movie out of something else that's different than a movie. Unless you're going to put it in the documentary category. Unless you're going to call it a documentary, but it's not a documentary. Yeah, but how is that different from any other adaptation? Just because they left the the live like the the live stage aesthetic in, like it, that is the only thing that makes it different from something like Rent or Grease or Twelve Angry Men or any Shakespeare movie. I'm not saying I have a perfect argument. <laughs> I'm saying that's why I don't feel. I know. I know. I, <laughs> we could talk about this for for way longer yeah i just didn't yeah. i just didn't know if and we've we've had this discussion before i just didn't know i don't i don't think we've ever had it on this podcast before i'm not a history and film and i i, I also probably haven't weighed in as mm. heavily because i think i was just kind of letting cody and aaron yell at you for a little bit <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the last thing i wanted to mention was the race blind casting so the idea of having Hispanics and African Americans and everybody play these founding father well, it's, types. It's more than race blind. It's they intentionally have like no white main characters except for except for George. Okay, okay. It's like the only one, King George. Right, right. But other than that, like everyone else is a person of color. And so I I like that a lot from a twofold standpoint. The lesser of which is. Huh, after decades of the opposite, see many John Wayne movies <laughs> where you have white actors playing people of color or whatever else. And that's, you know, arguably problematic is obviously and I, and I get I'm not I think there's a slippery slope there. It's like at some point it's going to be like, oh, you're having a firefighter. Why not hire an actual firefighter? Like at some point you can act. And we've kind of yeah. talked back before with like Lawrence Arabian stuff. And I think it's kind of it kind of highlights, though, that by going the other way with it and realize, well, this seems odd. Yeah, doesn't it? 
And so it's kind of like saying to all those decades of it being the opposite, see how weird that is. But I think the, the bigger thing I like about it is it drives home the idea that all Americans are American. It's not just a country of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Everybody in America can share in the history of the United States. And so even, you know, a Puerto Rican who moves here in the 20th century is just as much American and the history of the founding fathers is just as much their history as it is, quote, ours as, you know, white Anglo-Saxon descent. So I I, that that's the biggest reason I think it's kind of cool is that everybody's American. Look here, we can do about the founding fathers and just have African-Americans and and Hispanics uh, playing everybody because they're Americans too, just as much as anybody else. So that's the main reason I actually kind of like really for it, like big thumbs up for that. Like you said, not just race blind, but intentionally not a yeah. non-white cast. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for listening. Next week, we go forward, not actually too far now. We kind of had some big jumps here to get through the 18th century, but next week we'll be discussing the War of 1812, which is kind of right after, actually we already mentioned it, it was in the Madison administration. So stay tuned next time as we talk about the 1958 film, The Buccaneer. 